Today's podcast is brought to you by Rosarium Publishing, specializing in multicultural, speculative lit, comics, and crime fiction. They believe that talent is everywhere and doesn't inherently have a race, religion, region, or chromosome. Titles include Mothership, Tales of Afrofuturism and Beyond, Day Black, APB, Artists Against Police Brutality, and Malice in Ovenland. Rosarium books are sold on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Comixology, Peep Game Comics, rosariumpublishing.com, and your local bookstore. Rosarium Publishing, introducing the world to itself. Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta from Sci-Fi's The Magicians, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Leslie Harris, and I'm the director of Just Another Girl on the IRT. My upcoming film is called I Love Cinema, and I'm on the Black Girls Nerd Podcast. Hey, this is Jules Smith, creator of Afrocentric the Comic, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds. Welcome to episode 63 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Women in Tech, Remixing Colorblind, and Global Girls Squad. First of all, happy Women's History Month. And we are celebrating Women's History Month by having three segments filled with women who are currently making history in their respective fields. Our first segment includes Amanda Spann and Sheena Allen, who are app developers that are making waves in the tech community. Our second segment includes Dr. Sheena C. Howard, who has a documentary called Remixing Colorblind about implicit racial bias in the educational system. And on our third segment, we have Dina Tate, who has a Kickstarter under her company, Global Girls Squad. Our first segment is co-hosted by Kayla, Tara, and Joelle. Our second segment is hosted by Karan. And our third segment is hosted by Joy. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I think we have a lot in store for you. And a quick note, if you're in town in the city of Philadelphia, you know, the city of brotherly love, check me out. I will be at the Black Podcasters Meetup along with several other podcasters in this medium that are making waves in the Blurred community called the Blackfinity Gauntlet is a meetup of Blurreds and Black podcasters to show support for Amalgam Comics and Coffeehouse. And we're calling on the Blurred community from Virginia to New York to Pennsylvania to Delaware and all point beyond to come and match up the voices and faces of the podcasts that you listen to on a regular basis. So some of the list of the folks that are attending is yours truly, Jamie of Black Girl Nerds, 
Also, the Black Geeks, the Black Tribbles, Afro Nerd Radio, Geek Soul Brother, and some of the five nerdy Venoms, Ashley from Graveyard Shift Sisters, The Fanbros Show, Geekin' Over 40, and Comicidal Terrorhawks. So, hope you can check that out. That is going to be on Saturday, March 19th. The event starts at 2 o'clock. Go to blackgirlnerds.com for more information on that. Subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Twitter at blackgirlnerds. Again, thanks for tuning in and episode 63 coming at ya. Amanda Spann is the founder of a cocktail app called Alchemy and the co-founder of Tip Hub, an impact-driven innovation community for entrepreneurs in Africa and the African diaspora. Prior to her current ventures, Amanda was the CMO of Blurdology, a tech social enterprise to support and engage the black tech community and the first organization to host hackathons targeting African Americans. Sheena Allen is best known as the founder and CEO of a mobile application company, called Sheena Allen Apps and InstaFunds. Allen attended the University of Southern Mississippi to major in psychology and film. In 2011, during her senior year of college, she thought of an idea for a finance money organizing mobile app after leaving Walmart with a long receipt. With no technical background, Sheena designed her first app in Microsoft Word before finding a developer to partner with. Since then, Allen has built her app companies from one app with 50 downloads to six apps and counting with over 2 million downloads. Welcome to this segment of Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. I am very excited to introduce you guys to two amazing women who are doing phenomenal things in the tech world. I have Amanda Spann and Sheena Allen, who are the creators of apps such as Pixlet, Dublin, Words of Picks, InstaFunds, TwitBooth, and Orange Snap. Their apps have been aggregated over 2 million downloads. 2 million downloads have been aggregated with their apps. And they're here to chat with us about their latest tech app, Alchemy, and the work that they're doing in the tech industry. I also want to thank Joelle, Kayla, and Tara for co-hosting tonight. Thank you, Amanda and Sheena, for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having us. Cool. Thank you. We really appreciate you considering it. Absolutely. So, first of all, tell us about the Alchemy app. Is that something that you guys uh, created together as a partnership, or did one person design it and another person kind of took off with marketing it? Tell us a little bit about the advent of the Alchemy app. Okay, so... I, this is Amanda, I conceptualized Alchemy. I kind of got the idea when I was traveling. Um, I enjoy my spirits. <laughs> and uh, when I was on the road, I noticed it was really easy to find a great restaurant. You could get referrals and recommendations from people and places. And there were lots of different platforms that could tell you where to grab a good bite, but not so many places that could tell you where to get a good drink. And everyone has different tastes, different drinking styles. 
So it was very hard for me to find a place, you know, on the go anywhere in the world where I could, that, that met my taste, my price point and so forth. So I wanted to create a tool that would meet the dynamics of being a drinker, you know, who you are on a Tuesday night when you're coming home from work. Is it the same person you are? Is it the same needs that you have when you, you know, let's say go out on a Saturday night with your friends? Um, and so I wanted something that was all encompassing. I mean, it was my first app. And it's interesting because uh, a couple of years ago when I was working on another venture, we actually featured Sheena and the work that she had done on all of her previous apps on um, her other six apps for the years and how she had aggregated so many downloads. Um, and so when she had requested me on LinkedIn, I was like, oh, my God, this is fake. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I pitched it to her and we kind of founder dated for a little while and just spoke on the phone and got together for a drink and the energy was good. So we kind of ran with it from there. That's amazing. And I really love the fact that you two are partners in this because both of you have some history with Black Girl Nerds. Amanda, you were on our podcast many moons ago, it feels like, um, with with Kat, with the Blurtology venture that you were involved in. And then Sheena, you were featured on our BGN Girls series a couple of years ago. How did the two of you guys meet? So pretty much I... I don't know, she was, you know how like you on LinkedIn and have those people that are like recommended for you? Ah. So I saw and I was like, okay, I'm going to like request, um, which crazy enough, I never request people on LinkedIn. So it was weird that I actually requested to connect with her. And then reached out to me and she was like, hey, um, I had this app idea. No, let's talk about it. And we did, I think maybe a few months later, we actually met in Atlanta, had a drink. <laughs> she told me um, about her vision for alchemy and I loved it and I even though I was still doing Sheena Allen apps I really loved the vision that she had for alchemy and we went from there awesome Tara you're up what can we do to try and get more black females involved in technology I'm a black female involved in the technology field it's pretty much been my entire career and you know as a whole it's still pretty much just a game for white men and there's so much out there in the world like technology is such a broad term so, like, what can we do that's so untapped in our demographic? This is Sheena. So, in my opinion, I think the biggest thing is education. I know growing up for myself, there was never even the thought of somebody t- talking to me about, like, computer science or engineering or just anything really in the tech field. Of course, you know, I had, like, my Nokia that, like, brought the light-up case to it. But, like, that was, like, really as far as it went. So I think to get uh, more black females in this field, a lot of this goes back to educating and really putting it in the forefront. So even things like this, being able to do this podcast, the media attention that uh, we've like we've gotten, I think is so important. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to agree with her totally. I think, I mean, tech, it really has a marketing problem. Like, so I, I, I mean, I don't want to shy away from the fact that tech has a diversity problem, but I don't think their technology has a diversity problem, right? There's no lack of interest in technology from African-Americans or from women. I mean, we all see that, you know, black people over-index on, you know, social media platforms. We use technology more than other races and groups of people. So there's no lack of interest there, but it's about changing the narrative of who and what a technologist looks like, right? And letting people know that, 
you know, there's more roles in technology than being a developer or sitting behind a desk and coding. I think when you tell, if you were to tell, like Sheena, Sheena mentioned, if you would tell a young black child, like right now, okay, close your eyes, picture a computer scientist, they wouldn't necessarily picture a black person, a black woman or man. And so it's just about changing that perception, that narrative, increasing visibility and exposure through the media and through, you know, just awareness and, and taking the initiative in our own communities to expose our children, our youth, and even adults to opportunities and to people who don't fit that conventional norm or who don't fit that stereotype of, of what a technologist or what someone in tech should look like. I think that those are all very good points, especially when you speak about visibility. Like, it's something that you don't really see. And if we're not getting kids to envision that it can be them, then therein lies a part of the problem. So um, my next question is, what are some of the struggles that you face as you've developed yourself and the brand that you have for yourself? This is Shayna. So for me, I would say some of my biggest obstacles was actually at first it was finding mentors. I came from Mississippi. So, you know, there wasn't a place here. There wasn't like tech companies here that I could just go and add someone like, can you mentor me? Can I intern for you? And it just, it just wasn't available for me. So my biggest obstacle right off was just finding somebody to help me in trying to do what I want to do. And then the second biggest obstacle for me, which is actually what all black women for the most part are facing, was is funding. Uh, we are the least funded of everyone. So, you know, that same issue here. For me, I think was, you know, just kind of overcoming the initial initial issue was overcoming like imposter syndrome and like the belief, the internal belief and the mentality that I didn't really belong here. Like, I guess I had to change the narrative for myself because I felt like even though, you know, I was educating myself, even though I kind of went back to school, even though, you know, I was getting as much, if not more experience than other people, I still kind of questioned and doubted like whether I deserve to be here or if I deserve a spot in the room. And, you know, now I've gotten to a place where those thoughts are obsolete. Like, I don't, I don't think about that stuff anymore. Like, I, I work just as hard and I have every right to be where I am and to get what I deserve than any other person. I mean, funding is still overwhelmingly a challenge, but I do find that there are a lot of people who are willing to support me and, you know, support other Black women. But it's actually putting those things into practice and figuring out all the necessary steps you need to get to the funding. And I think there's there's a lack of connection, right? So a lot of times, especially as black women, we're just not as plugged into the the circle as everyone else. And it's not necessarily even an intentional thing all the time. It's just like, you know, people just innately black, white, whatever, tend to gravitate towards people who look like them or think like them or behave like them. So you know, you're you're more likely going to be able to relate to somebody who has a similar background to you. And, you know, you're going to communicate with other people and circles of people who, who mirror mirror your, your lifestyle. So for us, coming from a different community, coming from Florida, coming from Mississippi, you know, that community, that network wasn't readily accessible. We weren't raised in it. We didn't grow around it. So having to seek that out and find it 
as opposed to it finding you. Um, could be an uphill climb, but I think, you know, what we'll see in the next few years is that a lot more Black women are going to start to get funding once we start to put pieces together and once we connect all those dots and say, hey, these are the things that we need to do to get in the door and to not only, like, sit at the table but own the table. I think you'll you'll see a lot more of it. So this is just, this is a turning of the tide. It's 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 going down. So get ready. <laughs> <laughs> going down. <laughs> uh, you guys had mentioned that there were jobs in the tech industry outside of coding for women and women of color. What what jobs and uh how can you know young girls get into them? Okay. Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a technology publicist for one. Like. I work in the tech space and I, I do all types of like marketing efforts, whether on the PR side, marketing side or advertising. There's lots of opportunities for marketers. I mean, you you got to think about it this way. Like a tech company, it may be built on the Internet or it may be some type of software solution or product. But at its core, it's still a company, right? So what does a company need? A company's still going to need a secretary. A company's still going to need someone to run the financial end of things. They're going to need someone to run the operations side of things. They're going to need project managers. They're going to need developers. They're going to need marketers. And they're going to need a sales team. All of those things are in almost every tech company. So there's a role for anyone. They just need to familiarize themselves with the product and really get ingrained in the space. I strongly encourage people to self-educate themselves because, you know, your liberal, I mean, the liberal arts degree is the next, hot tech ticket like if you can think about you can think about people over products and like your consumers and and how to better appeal to them and how to better relate to them you mean you can always find people to help you improve the product right so there are opportunities and avenues like that for everyone you just have to seek them out and sometimes you have to create them for yourself awesome thank you so much that's really helpful I didn't know much about the tech industry. I've just kind of started getting into like web development and design and kind of stuff. So that was really helpful. Thank you. Carrie, did you want to chime in? So I work as an information systems auditor. It doesn't sound like the most riveting job by all means. No one likes auditors, but that's a huge untapped market. And I know for our company as a whole, like we really push for diversity and inclusiveness. And it's a great way to get yourself in the door as far as just like the point that was just made, there's so much available if you can just get a foot in the door. You may not start off at the best job that you really like doing, but auditing, especially in the information systems realm, because that's just a huge thing now. Cyber is a huge buzzword, one that I hate. But on that same note, you can do things beyond development because security is actually a huge thing for people as a whole. And to find really good security analysts, whether it be penetration testing or network analysts, what have you, like, those are untapped markets, really. They truly are. So it's just really also about, like, broadening your horizons and looking beyond what the stereotypical, almost, like, computer geek role is. That's that's actually a really good point, Tara, because I remember when we had done our Black Coders podcast, and this was a couple of years ago, uh, the discussion of securities being an untapped market was brought up then. So it's very interesting that you bring that up now, you know, 2016, that that's still an untapped market and that we need more people of color and women in those areas. So it's an interesting point to bring up. What do you guys say to young girls who are interested in developing their own apps or designing web pages, uh, but don't feel they have the means or guidance to do so? 
Uh, well, I will say that's probably like the the thing not to do is think that you can't do it. I was kind of like that at first. So I designed my first app in Microsoft Word, which I would not recommend anybody design. <laughs> <an app>. <laughs> <laughs> but when you don't know, I, you literally just have to go with what you know and build your way up. And I guess the perfect example I can give you, like I didn't know you know, how to go in Photoshop and do a, do UI and UX and design this beautiful screen design for my app. Like, I didn't know how to do that. I took what I knew, which was pen and paper and Microsoft Word, and I just, I started. Like, you have to start somewhere. I think the biggest obstacle for a lot of people, especially, once again, black women in tech, is we just, we just were so worried about the what ifs and I don't know and I can't that we just forget to start. The key is just to start. Hmm. No, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I think for a lot of us, the fear, I don't know if it's the fear, fear of failure or the fear of looking seemingly incompetent at something or the fear of just like the unknown. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what that fear is. We let that fear cripple us a lot of times. And I mean, I have kind of a personal mantra that, you know, fear is not a good enough reason to not do something that you're really passionate about, right? And fear is the absence of faith. So you have to, you know, believe in yourself enough to think, okay, I can really do this, and that I'm enough and I'm confident enough to make this happen. Even if I don't know and I don't have all the details right now, like, I just remind people that nobody knows anything until they learn it, right? And you're not going to learn it by just sitting there just wondering what if or, you know, just sitting there just not starting, essentially. But you just got to take that leap. And I think if, you know, you humble yourself and let people know, hey, I'm really interested in learning more about this. Hey, could you help me with that? The universe will always conspire in your favor. You just have to be willing to put yourself out there. And it can be it can be daunting. It can be scary. It can be, you know, intimidating. It can hurt your pride to have to do it, but at the end of the day, I mean, you'll be better for it, whether the app works out or it doesn't. It's all a learning process. You'll still have those contacts. You'll still have those connects. You'll still be able to take that, you know, take everything you learn with you to the next project. So almost everything in this life is temporary. So you just, you know, go from moment to moment, take what you can and build from there. Kayla, you're up. So you've already touched on a few of the obstacles you've had to overcome to get to where you are right now. But, you know, what are some of the personal doubts that you've had to overcome with your journey to becoming the entrepreneur that you are as a black woman? Hmm, personal. I'll, I don't know. I guess for me it was, I won't say it's my environment because I was raised by, you know, great parents who did everything possible for me. But you kind of, you're, I was stepping out on something that no one understood. So even if somebody, you know, supporting you, you know, like nobody really understands what you're doing. Like my dad, I'm be honest, he thought I was completely crazy. Um, <laughs> he seriously was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, dad, I want to do tech. And he's like, what? And you know, I was to the point, I was like, you know, this is what I want to do. Like I'm going to figure it out. And my dad, is he's old school. And he's like, listen, you need a secure job with a secure paycheck. You need to go find a job. You got a degree, go find a job. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. But that didn't go over too well. Let me say that. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I would say for me that my, on the personal side, it would be that is I'll group around people who are just, you know, they have that mentality. Like you get you a nine to five, you have a secure paycheck. Being an entrepreneur is great, but you know, we don't have time for that. You know, that's the thing you see on TV or, you know, if you, you are an entrepreneur, it's because you opened up maybe like a local burger joint or something like that. It's not about, I'm going to be own this tech company and I'm going to go, you know, to Silicon Valley. Just not saying Silicon Valley is the place to go all the time. Just an example. Like that was my mind. I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to stay in Mississippi as far as having a nine to five and just, you know, doing the regular thing. Like, I did not want to do that. And, you know, a lot of people didn't understand that. So that was for me on the personal side. Those are my biggest obstacles. Yeah. I, I actually had kind of had a similar thing, a similar story. My dad actually works in technology but I think it was just hard for him and he's he's actually created a startup before as well a tech startup and a consultancy but I think it's always hard seeing your baby girl struggle you know like you know you have men who are raising daughters and sons too like you just you want to see your child be secure and safe and be able to pay their bills and be able to take care and stand up take care of themselves and stand on their own two feet so I think it's hard, especially when, you know, they want to build an unconventional business, right? Like, I mean, it's one thing, like Sheena said, if you want to create like a burger joint or you want to make something tangible and physical, you want to make a clothing store, something that people can physically see. But you're like, oh, no, I'm going to build this thing on the Internet, <laughs> on the World Wide Web. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to build something that does not exist, that no one has done before, and I'm going to I'm going to make lots of money doing it. You just, I mean, people think you're crazy. But, I mean, you do have to have a degree of, like, you have to be a little crazy to be like, okay, you know, I'm going to build this thing that's never been done before, and I'm just going to run with it. So, you know, drowning out that noise at first, and other people telling me, well, I guess, I don't know about all of that. Just being able to, you know, trust yourself and believe in yourself and bet on you. Sometimes you have to really muster up the strength and the courage to say, okay, I'm going to bet on myself. And one story I'm always reminded of is, and I'm probably going to tell it wrong, but when Oprah first got her start, one thing she did is I guess they couldn't afford to either give her a salary. They couldn't afford to give her a salary or as much money as she would have liked for I think her one of her first shows. So instead, she was like, well, I'll just take the rights to my show. And, you know, Oprah's been in syndication for, I don't know, how long has she been on the air? Like 20, 25 years? Mm -hmm. So she has the rights to all this show. And this is what made Oprah a billionaire. The fact that she bet on herself and was like, okay, I don't have the money right now. I'm not going to get as much as I would like. I'm not going to take that initial salary, but I'm going to bet on myself and believe that this show is going to stand the test of time. And it has. That has what, in part, has made Oprah super rich, a billionaire. So just learning to bet on yourself, learning that confidence, drowning out the noise, and just believing that you can do it. That's the biggest hurdle, the personal thing that I've had to overcome. Sheena, I know you said you're from Mississippi. I was from, I'm from Vicksburg, so I know the struggle of the school system in Mississippi. So what are some of the... How important do you feel it is and what can we do to develop the technology programs in the school systems? Have you thought about ways that you could get in there and build it up so that they're ready for the workforce? Um, you know, crazy enough, I've, I've actually spoken to two or three administrators here 
in like the Jackson area because you know, I travel a lot and I actually, you know, quote unquote officially moved away about three years ago, but I come back very, very often now, um, especially like in the last few months because I'm trying to do a few things here in Mississippi. And I'm just telling them like how weird it is when I walk into a school and you see like the kid in the hallway and the principal has to like walk the kid all the way back to the front office and the secretary has to like type the kid's name in and all that. And then you go to like the bigger city and the principal has like a mini iPad in his hand and he like types the kid's name in and he's like, you're supposed to be in such and such a class and you've had four tardies. I'm like, no, we are quite far behind. We have a we have a long way to go. I think that we are on the right path. Um, I know for for sure there's like two or three schools who are currently doing offering like coding classes, but just overall we have a long way to go. I think a lot of it deals with just the mindset. You know, just not in tech. We're behind in a lot of things in Mississippi, but it, it yeah. does it, it it takes someone to actually get the ball rolling. And that's why that's one of the reasons that for the last few months I've come back here more because I'm hoping to be able to be that person that can really get the ball rolling. It's, it's, it's a mentality thing. You know, I'm going to rap. I'm going to, you know, be a ball player. Like, no, like there's other things that you can do. There's tech. There's, I mean, it's, and it's not even just tech. There's just so many more options. And I just feel like they don't make it, you know, they don't tell these, these kids those type of things. I tell kids all the time when I go speak, especially here, like, you know, stop trying to focus on being like the cool kid. Like, you know, a lot of times the cool kid ends up being the broke kid. Like, stop trying to be cool. Stop trying to do what you see on TV because a lot of what you see on TV is smoking mirrors. Like, that's not real life. Instagram is not real life. It's the life they want you to see. So it's just really just changing the mentality of people here. And I, it, it just, it's going to take baby steps. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen probably next two or three years. But if it's going to take baby steps, and I think now is the perfect time to get it, you know, get that ball rolling. So I wanted to ask about if any of you heard Catherine Finney's new initiative that she's doing with Project Diane, where she's helping to provide funding for black female tech founders. First of all, have you heard about that? And um, if so, what are your thoughts about it? And is that something that more women of color can start to help us actually get the funding and the money together to build our own applications and to start our own companies. Yeah, so I'm familiar. I actually, a long time ago, I used to do PR for a little while for Digital Undivided, so I'm very familiar with Catherine and um, her her initiative. I think what they're doing is great. And the fact that they were able to get the word out to so many, so many publications about the disparities, because I think, you know, it really, we can talk about it. People are like, oh, you know, you're just complaining. It really isn't that bad. When you actually look at the number, and I think the list said maybe there was only like eight founders, it was like eight to 10, something like that. Over the past few years, that's gotten over a million dollars. Like, that's insane. But I, I think the work they're doing is phenomenal. But it, what's tough about it is that they're a relatively small team, you know? They've done phenomenal work with that team, but they can't be everywhere at once. Mm -hmm. And so we have to do a better job of supporting organizations like Digital Undivided and, you know, initiatives like Project Diane 
to, you know, take the word out elsewhere and figure out what we can do to take their messaging, take their initiatives, as opposed to starting new initiatives. There are so many, so many organizations that are on the ground right now that need our support and need us to lend our ears, our eyes, our hands, our feet to actually implementing their services, their projects and initiatives all over the country from the Mississippis to the Chicago's to, you know, just small town America to the big cities, inner cities as well. So I think we just we really just need to support organizations like that and, and spread the word as much as we can. Awesome. So when did you guys have your aha moment? Like this was what I'm supposed to be in. This is like my calling for the rest of, well, maybe not for the rest of your life, but this is my calling at least for quite a while. For me, it was probably two moments. The first one would be after I released Dublin for Android. So it was on iPhone. It was getting like a lot of buzz. Like, you know, the downloads were crazy. You know, people were like bombarding my email and social media. And I was like, hey, we wanted for Android. We wanted for Android. And so I was like, I've never done an Android app. But hey, two years ago, I had never done an iPhone app. So we're going to do it. I got developed. We released it for Android. And within two or three months, it had like a half million downloads. Wow. And I was like, okay, well, maybe this is kind of serious. Um, <laughs> that was my first one. My second one would be, I remember just anybody that's an entrepreneur, you have those days and those nights where you really are like, I don't know if this is for me. And I was having one of those days and I get an email and the email is actually from a young girl. She's in middle school. She's from Ohio. And the email pretty much read that she had used one of my apps and it was one of her favorite apps. And she noticed when she opened the app that it said Sheena Allen apps. And she said, she said, that's a girl's name. <laughs> and she was so amazed because she realized that her favorite app had been developed by a girl. So th- for me, those like, those two moments were like, you know, this, I'm, I'm supposed to do this. Um, two moments. Uh, I, I suppose, I mean, the two biggest moments is when, I mean, I, I used to work in entertainment PR and so uh, just the entertainment industry in general. And I, I just got to a place where I was just completely unfulfilled with it. I just really wasn't happy. And so I always had an interest in technology, but I didn't really know where to start. So it, getting into the space was kind of difficult for me because I had to teach myself everything. I was always like kind of uncertain at first. Like, is this going to work out? Does this make sense? Like I was really just betting on like betting on an idea. But I think one of the first moments came when, uh, you know, people start reaching out to me personally and being like, Hey, you know, I really see what you're doing and I really feel inspired by what you're doing and I really would love to learn more about it and how I could get in the space and then meeting a few people who I have met along the way and who I supported their ventures and they, you know they came to me in two separate instances and people were like you know you really changed my life because you were able to help me with this project because you know you took the time to do x y and z for me and this initiative and technology I you know my life changed as a result of that. My life went on a totally different trajectory. Those moments were really rewarding. And then my sister, actually, she's a computer science major at FAMU now. But before, she really didn't know what she wanted to do before she got to college. 
And she used to play video games incessantly. Like, oh my gosh, this one girl would not stop playing video games. She was either playing video games, she was drawing or watching anime. She was online chatting with all these people, just creating all this kind of cool stuff online. And one day she was playing a game and I was like, hey, you know, you could create this game, right? And get paid to do it. Like, it was like a light bulb just went off in her head. And from then on, she she got really excited about it and enthused. And so she asked, could she be enrolled in like a coding course? And she, when she was in high school, we enrolled her into a class, like a, a summer class. She created her own app. She built some robots. And since then, she's just been all in with computer science. So that's her major now. She's a mentor at FAMU for STEM field. So she mentors high schoolers and middle schoolers on, you know, just STEM education and opportunities on how they can get involved in STEM and technology. So it was just really great seeing her, like her blossom in that way on something she was already passionate about, but she just didn't really realize that it was an opportunity right in front of her. That's amazing. And I really feel like a lot of like youth, I don't know if that's right, but the youths are really getting into the designing of stuff. And I remember like back in the day, like by Zanga, just trying to like figure out code and stuff like that. So I think it's amazing what you guys are doing and especially this kind of support and education and boosting for girls that are are coming into this later. I want to go back to an earlier question, which is what kind of apps are you guys looking to come out next? Is there like a new wave of, of app technology or new like brand type of app or something you guys would like to see more of in the community of people who develop apps? I think right now what's really big is on demand. Like on demand is really big now. So somebody brings you food, you can push a button, somebody picks you up, somebody goes grocery shopping for you. Like on demand is really, really big right now. And eventually we'll roll over into something else. I'm, I'm not, honestly, I'm not quite sure what it is, but I'm sure as a whole, we're going to be disrupting some industry very soon. <laughs> but <laughs> I will say in technology in itself, Virtual reality is going to be huge. Yes. It's that going to be commercial for the uh, Super Bowl. Yeah. It's all kinds of excited for the future. Yeah. And, you know, I'm absolutely going to find a way to be part of that. Somewhere or another, we're going to find our way. And it's going to be really big with virtual reality. I would have to say, I mean, fintech is huge right now. And we've already started to trend towards this, but like the gamification of everything not just, I mean, in the traditional sense anymore. I mean, we have games and everything, but like everything is becoming gamified. Like everyone is trying to figure out a more fun, engaging, concise way to present content, surveys, everything really, and just make it interactive so that people are like looped in and constantly engaged. So not really a big gamer, but I'm excited. I'm excited about the convenience factor, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Well, I just want to say thank you, ladies, so much for coming on the show. This was really phenomenal to have you guys tell us about how you got started in the industry, where you're going, and the future of this app technology, and that you know, there anybody out there can really create an app and you just have to go out there and do it. Like you said, just step out on faith. So thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. 
Can you tell us where we can find you on the interwebs and give us your social media shout outs? Sure, sure. Um, so you can find both of us at Alchemy App. So A-L-C-H-O-M-Y app, A-P-P, on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. My personal handle is on Instagram is the Amanda Span. The, that's Spam with two N's, S, S is in Sam, P is in Paul, A is in Apple, N is in Nancy, N is in Nancy. I have to do that a lot. Spam <laughs> <So laughs> with two N's, and I'll, I'll let Sheena tell you her handles. My personal website is SheenaAllen.co.co. My Instagram and Twitter is at WhoIsSheena, and my Facebook is backslash Sheena D. Allen. Thanks, ladies. This is an excellent, excellent interview. All right, awesome. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, ladies, so, so much for having us. We'll return after this brief message. Have you heard the one about the narcoleptic day-walking vampire tattoo artist? Dayblack, a comic book series written and drawn by Keith Cross, is the story of Merce, a former slave who was bitten by a vampire and now works as a tattoo artist in a small town whose sky is so dark with pollution that the sun no longer shines. Inexplicably, Merce keeps falling asleep at awkward times. He's plagued by strange visions and someone who knows his true identity now threatens to turn him back into the cold-hearted killer he once was. Find out what happens in Day Black number 5, out now on Comixology. Rosarium Publishing. Introducing the world to itself. In our next segment, Quran interviews Dr. Sheena C. Howard. Dr. Sheena C. Howard is a Huffington Post writer and the first black female Eisner Award winner, also a producer and director of the Remixing Colorblind documentary. The two discuss the implicit racial bias that happens in our school's educational system, and she goes into further detail surrounding her latest project, Remixing Colorblind, and defines the institutions of class and race in the works that she provided in her documentary. Take a quick listen from a soundbite from the trailer Remixing Colorblind by Dr. Sheena C. Howard. It definitely encourages students to think about it. I just wonder how they're thinking about it. You know, so I'm thinking of the admissions process where you have to check a box, you know, identify yourself. And they give you a certain amount of options and they give you other when filling out forms, I had to check off one of those boxes about my race. I always put other. It wasn't even like a thought process anymore. It was just check other because I think growing up in predominantly white schools, people always look at me and they just say she's black. Some of the applications that I did, like they didn't have a mixed box. They had like either white, uh, black Hispanic or Asian. So it's kind of like, okay, well, what do you do with that? I always try to encourage administrators to start thinking outside of those boxes in terms of like, okay, we, we're asking these questions, we're asking students to check these boxes, but like, we're still not clear why. Because we want to say that, oh, we don't do quotas. We want to say that it really doesn't impact admissions, but it does. When it comes to different types of students, whether multicultural students or, or your, your traditional Caucasian students, no. I think really the, the college student is looking for what the college student wants, and that's going to be 
an opportunity to have some fun, you know, do well in the classroom, have some of those college type experiences. But for the most part, that list is going to be the same for every high school, college age student. I actually didn't think about diversity when I was selecting college, but now I wish I did. Because when I came, I didn't realize, um, like, how the, there's not much Hispanics here. So since I didn't realize that, it was a very, like, big culture shock for me. So I came to the HBCU because I had a pretty difficult experience in high school. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, and my high school was in the outskirts of Memphis. And it was extraordinarily racist. The action services and checks and balances, balances for me. So as long as we have a disproportionate number of African Americans in the workplace, then we need some type of checks and balance system, whether it be affirmative action, whatever we want to call it. Make sure your campus climate is a climate that actually is inviting for people from different backgrounds. Having mentors who understand some of the challenges those students are going to have um, is absolutely vital. What about the faculty? right? Why aren't faculty numbers increasing? And that's the thing that kind of like, you know, gets under my skin. I think the presumption, again, is that we aren't good enough to get in those spaces. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for the Black Girl Nerds podcast. This is Karan. And today we're talking to Dr. Sheena Howard, who has a brand new documentary that will debut this week called Remixing Colorblind. Remixing Colorblind Racism on Campus is a documentary that examines how the educational system today shapes our understanding of race and by extension, the nuances of race relations. And that includes notions of implicit bias, individual racism, institutional racism, and reverse racism. I want to welcome you, Dr. Sheena Howard. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. So Dr. Howard, why now for remixing colorblind? Well, I've actually been thinking about the way I want to tell this particular story for um, a few years now, particularly uh, when I started my first full-time faculty position at Ryder University is really when I started thinking critically about um, the educational system and how it really has shaped my sense of self and my understanding of, of race. And so it just so happens that about a year ago, I really decided um, to just to just go ahead and do the project. And can you tell us or explain to our, our listeners what exactly is colorblindness and why does it matter? Well, the colorblind ideology um, really came about, um, I'd say, in the Obama era where people were saying that, you know, the millennial generation is colorblind, meaning they don't see race. Right, everybody's the same. We don't see these racial differences. Um, the problem with the colorblind ideology is it disallows us from speaking about uh, notions of race and the negative um, harms of race that are bestowed upon, particularly people of color. Um, so while it might be beneficial um, to white people to have a colorblind ideology, a person of color cannot afford to uh, be colorblind, especially when you look at. Um, the ways in which your race um, oppress, oppresses you in certain ways in society. Now, some would argue that that theory is flawed because people who claim that they don't see color also want to convince us that they believe that all people are created equal when we know, in fact, that 
we may have been created equally, but we're not treated equally. So what would you say to someone who uh, disagrees with that ideology about colorblindness not being accurate or correct or right? Well, I would say um, the colorblind ideology is not correct or accurate and is not um, helpful for the present um, situation that we are in in America. Um, there are a lot of racial anxieties. Um, there are a lot of statistics around um, ways that people of color, particularly black and Hispanic people, are disenfranchised, um, disproportionately affected uh, by things like, you know, pay, police brutality, mm-hmm. um, graduation rates, and higher education. So, again, we cannot afford to operate within this notion of a colorblind um, ideology because we are not in a post-racial America. Post-racial America, that, that term always kind of I don't know, makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up for some reason um, to, to believe we are in a post-racial America would mean that Donald Trump wouldn't exist, but that's a whole nother issue. Right. Um, <laughs> as far, can we talk a little bit about erasure and what that means in the context of colorblindness? About the eraser? About what erasure is and how, erasure. That, mm-hmm, and how that factors into colorblindness. Well, I think particularly for, um, the millennials, so the college-age students, um, a lot of them are operating um, within this colorblind notion. Um, so when you ask them questions like, you know, do you think race should be factored into um, college admissions or the hiring process based on the, you know, historical ways that particularly particularly African Americans have been oppressed, you know, they'll say no. Mm-hmm. They'll say no. You know, I think that people should just um, be accepted based on their merit and not based on the color of their skin. So you can see um, even with our young generation, mm-hmm. um, you know, though they have a need to want to get past race, um, they're ignoring the very real um, circumstances um, that are affecting people of color and that will, in fact, affect them. So when it comes to millennials and those who are younger than millennials who are just approaching uh, the, the age of life, the stage of life where it's time for them to choose their next step in higher education, how does colorblindness affect the process of even discovering new schools? Um, well, some of the things that we talk about in the documentary are the anxieties around checking a box. Mm-hmm. As far as what is your ethnicity, black, white, other, mixed, Hispanic, um, Hispanic, white, Hispanic, not white. Um, so that really comes through in the documentary, the students really grappling with what it means to check one box over another. We talked to a couple of biracial students um, who really um, talk in depth in the documentary about um, the ways they strategically select one box uh, over the other. Um, and so we talk about some of those very real issues from the college admissions process um, to students' perceptions of who's getting scholarships and who's not along racial lines, and then also while they're on campus, um, how notions of race are being reinforced and perpetuated in um, often harmful ways. And as far as biracial students are concerned, that part of the documentary really um, inspired a lot of questions for me um, because you did have more than one um, person of, of biracial heritage who spoke very openly 
about having to choose and what it means to check that box. But why wouldn't or why would someone who is biracial, but on the lighter side of biracial, um, those who could pass, um, and for those that don't know what that means there, because we call, because we come in all colors, you know, uh, shapes and sizes, there are some people who look white, who look black, who look racially ambiguous. So why would someone choose one box over the other or not make a choice at all? I think it's uh, their perceptions around race. I mm -hmm. think some students have an idea that perhaps checking, you know, white or African-American may get them something more or get them something less. Again, since our notions of race, particularly in the college admissions process, have been, you know, reduced to this box, um, it, it creates oftentimes false perceptions. You know, students go into college uh, thinking that African-American students get more uh, scholarships and grants than white students, and it's simply not true. More than 70% of white students get all of the merit-based um, private scholarships and funding to go to college. I also think um, we're, we're talking about biracial students and checking the box. It has a lot to do um, with their own sense of self. Um, you know, some students will say, you know, I refuse to deny my mother or my father, you know, mm -hmm. my white mm -hmm. mother or, or my black father. Um, we also saw one student in the documentary who said, you know, I look white, so I wouldn't check off African-American because when I show up, um, people are going to question my blackness. And we have a lot of um, policing blackness, particularly within the black community, that also adds some anxieties um, around race for, for students. And, you know, that that brings up another question that we hear all the time when it comes to race relations and that that ill-fated question is, what are you? Mm -hmm. um, we hear it a lot when it comes to uh, light and dark Latinas. We hear it when it comes to colorism within our own community and when it comes to Southeast Asians, even um, people from all parts of the world who are still separated, not necessarily within their race, but uh but by the literal skin tone within their, within their race. Is that addressed at all in the documentary? I think one of the things um, that comes out in the documentary, maybe not directly, but indirectly, is the uh, multiplicity within mm -hmm. our blackness. Mm -hmm. um, and also the ways that within our blackness, um, race is nuanced. Right. It's not just black and white. It's not just, you know, I'm African-American, you know, and I was born here. Um, and we also see that we challenge each other with, within our blackness. Right. If we're talking about someone who, you know, can trace their history back to, you know, a certain place in Africa versus an African-American who is here and can't trace their history. So we see some competition um, within the multiplicity um, of race that creates some challenges as well. Um, when we talk about uh, multiplicity, when exactly did we start seeing the other box on applications? Um, it's really been since 2000 on uh, that organizations and people really started lobbying um, to really expand uh, the categories of those boxes on the census. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really been, you know, the last decade, decade and a half where we were seeing those options open up. And as far as HBCUs are concerned, let's talk about that for a quick moment. 
What does the impact of this have on HBCUs, just as the assumption is that minorities are the recipients of merit-based scholarships, which we know it's not true, um, the majority of merit-based scholarships, rather, um, that is sometimes flipped. Now, we're seeing a rise in um, white students at uh, minority institutions, historically black colleges and, and institutions, for the sake of getting access to scholarship money because they become the minority in that environment. Can you speak on that a little? Well, a lot of interesting things have happened in the Obama era, Mm -hmm. and one of those things has to do with HBCUs. So in the last um, eight years, there's been a lot of pressure on HBCUs to diversify, you know, meaning accept more um, white students and students outside of um, uh, the box of being African-American. So we're seeing pressure on HBCUs to diversify, but we're also seeing this natural diversification um, on predominantly uh, white campuses. I think when we're talking about HBCUs, since there are a large number of black students um, and black faculty members on those campuses, the stigma around race goes away. So for a black student at a predominantly white school, they're going to be dealing with some of the stigma around, you know, did you only get here because of affirmative action? Uh, You know, are you only here because you're on some sort of athletic scholarship Mm -hmm. or you got some sort of money specifically for African-American students? That stigma goes away along the lines of race at HBCUs. But what about culture versus the resources that are available? Um, I'm originally from Baltimore. I'm from Maryland. And there was a huge story um, over the last couple of weeks about the governor uh, choosing not to give money to the historically black institution. Uh, One of the schools I went to, Morgan State University, uh, for example, in favor of putting more money into rehabbing the jails. Um, How does this affect minority institutions and the money that's dispersed. Is that something that's addressed as well? Yeah. With that particular, we didn't get a chance to address economics and income in Mm -hmm. the documentary, which is actually an aspect that we did want to address, but we wanted to keep it um, really to a 30 minute uh, documentary. Um, But Again, a lot of interesting things have happened in the Obama era, and one of those things is the persistence to challenge the relevance of HBCUs. Um, and HBCUs have historically been, you know, under underfunded and under under resourced, and that's continuing uh, to happen. We also saw um, in the Obama era, you know, people having a really hard time keeping um, credit to afford to go to college, meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a there was a there was actually a cap on the credit score that you needed to have in order for parents to get uh, student loans for their kids to go to HBCUs, um, and so that really strapped HBCUs in some uh, very very harsh ways. But also, we're seeing a lot of HBCUs um, become pre- predominantly white institutions mm-hmm. across this country, and and that goes to speak to the the demographic shifts um, with the high school student population. So why is remixing colorblind important for students? Um, I think it's important for, um, I think it's important for individuals that run institutions 
to watch this documentary so that they can be equipped and prepared and do the necessary things on their campus so that we won't see these highly charged race incidents on campus that make mm -hmm. it to mainstream media. And if individuals that run institutions, I'm talking about administrators and faculty, do the things necessary so that students of color can thrive on their campuses, then it's going to affect uh, students of color in positive ways. Unfortunately, that is not happening. And by 2012, 2020, there's going to be more students of color than white students graduating from high school. So what that means is there's a very good chance that we're going to see more of these race-based incidents on campus as we have more of a critical mass of students of color who are just simply not willing to take the implicit as well as the um, overt bias and racism that they're seeing on campus. We've seen such a huge increase in racial violence. Just it's just all the way out there. Um, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Um, the kind of racial violence. I have a daughter that's out of college. I have one that's in college right now. And one it, it's it's really astonishing when you look at the statistics when it comes to the safety and the, and the news, what we do actually see on the news and to because we've experienced these uh, institutions for ourselves, both uh, HBCUs and uh, predominantly white institutions, we know that everything doesn't get reported and doesn't get media coverage. Mm -hmm. So what mm -hmm. can we do to keep our children safe? Um, one, I think for high school students that are looking for a college campus, um, really pay attention um, to the environment, right? Does this feel like a safe environment? Look at the faculty diversity of the campus. Look at the administration. Um, look at the diversity around administration. Um, there's a very good website, thedemands.org, um, that has a list of over 70 schools in which students have said to their administrators, you know, we need these things addressed along the lines of race to make this campus safe. I would say go to sites like that. See if the institution that you're thinking of sending your child to is on that list. Um, as far as institutions are concerned, um, there are actual practices that can be changed on the college campus. And so one of the things with this documentary is I'm setting up a campus tour now, and I'm also creating a supplemental, which is either going to be a PDF or a website with actual practices that institutions can implement to make their um, campus cultures better for students of color. You know, right now, black and Hispanic um, college students have a only a 50% um, graduation rate, mm -hmm. and it's even um, uh, worse than that at, at different types of universities. What is our hope for um, some positive aspects of remixing colorblind? What do you hope that it will inspire or change? Um, again, I hope that I hope that administrators um, and faculty. I mean, the individuals that run universities will take this documentary and say that we're going to be proactive in making our campus climate better. A lot of institutions haven't had to deal with the influx of students of color on campus. You know, mm -hmm. we're enrolling more students of color than ever before on college campuses. And so that's why you're seeing these these very vocal students come out and say things need to change. Add to the mix social media, uh, videos, recording things that are happening on campus, anonymous apps like YitGak where, where students can, you know, log the racist incidents that they're seeing through these social uh, media apps. So I think 
I'm hoping that this documentary will be um, something that will make people proactive in really examining their campus culture to address these issues um, so they, that they don't continue to persist for students of color. Now, your premiere is on February 25th. How excited are you? I'm very excited. I'm, I'm happy to know that the theater is sold out, so people are interested in this topic. They're ready to engage in the conversation. Um, this is my first film, so you know I'm hoping everything goes uh, smoothly. Um, and I'm, I'm most interested in the conversation that's going to take place after the screening. My issue is a lot of the times we only talk about race and higher education when there's, you know, a racial protest on a college mm -hmm. campus that happens to blow up in the media. But we need to be doing things before that, right? We need to be talking and changing our practices before it even reach, reaches uh, that level. Is reverse racism real? Um, I think a lot of people think it's real. You know, we have a student in the documentary um, saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm looking for scholarships and I see these scholarships that are only for African-Americans. And white students really, really do feel that that is an injustice towards them. But again, a lot of our young people um, are not taking into account the historical atrocities against um, African-Americans. Mm -hmm. And they're also not taking into account the present-day atrocities um, that African-Americans are experiencing. And that takes, you know, a, a very real reading of statistics and facts. Um, it takes, you know, looking outside of what the media um, is showing us to understand the very complex situation uh, that people of color are in. So, Dr. Howard, um you wrote, directed, and produced Remixing Colorblind, and I think that's so important for so many of our listeners um, to understand that you wrote, directed, and produced. This is your first film, and I got to tell you guys, it's amazing. It is a thought-provoking, it is just, it's provocative. It cuts straight to the point. It does not mince its words. It is, um, it treats the subject matter with absolute integrity and respect. And I was really, really impressed to find that this was your first foray into film. Do you intend on doing more films? Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. We actually are thinking about extending this particular uh, film you know, there's a lot of footage that we had to cut out, and we actually want to talk to, you know, some more people, mm -hmm. um, pr particularly faculty members. Um, so we're thinking about extending this particular film, but for right now, we'll take uh, this current iteration onto the film festival circuit and onto college campuses so that we can start talking about what we can do tangibly um, to be proactive um, in, in fixing our problems with race and higher education. Absolutely. And what, what advice would you have for parents who are helping to guide their children through the process um, and their, their current students who are in college or may or may not be experiencing uh, challenges and resulting from this colorblind phenomenon? 
You know, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, you're, you're spending a lot of money to send your child to a university, and you, you want to protect them, right? You don't want them to be experiencing any, any form of racism on college campuses. And unfortunately, we have people who are advocating, you know, this freedom of expression and diversity uh, dichotomy as if, you know, mm-hmm. we should just suck it up and get over it, as if everything that we're complaining about is just racially insensitive comments on campus when it's not. Um, I'd say for parents, um, you know, again, visit visit the college campuses. Ask questions. Look at the racial makeup of the university. When you have a critical mass of students of color and, and actual diversity with a good mix of students, you have a better chance of having a, a better environment for your child. Um, for me, you know, I went to a historically black university for my PhD, um, and I went to a predominantly white institution for my undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think both of those experiences really taught me um, a lot about race. And when I got to the HBCU at Howard University, it actually reworked some of my notions um, around race and some of my notions around uh, of blackness, which was very important. So I would say weigh all your options, visit the college campus, ask questions. Um, and I really, I really would um, push parents, you know, to Money is a powerful thing, right? And if we stop sending our students to these institutions that we know have racial problems, um, they will begin to pay attention, I believe. You know, I agree with that because uh, when I did have issues and and had to confront some challenges with my own daughter, um, no ma'am, no sir, this is my dime and you need to understand Mm -hmm. that your money has power. And Mm -hmm. when you withdraw it, it speaks a whole lot louder. Right. Um, than the pen or the sword. So um, I definitely agree with that. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be a guest here on Black Girl Nerds. This was a really insightful, I cannot stress enough how insightful. I wish I had this film when my oldest daughter was starting to go to college. I really did. It would have... It would have really uh, taken the blinders off of a lot of things. And when you talk about the nuances of racism within higher higher learning and higher um, in colleges and universities, there are a lot of microaggressions. There Mm. are a lot of things and issues that come up in paperwork that come up in the structure of registration that come up Mm -hmm. in how you're counseled. um, Right. And and we've seen stories over the last year, you know, folk that are caught on ca- on camera, you know, in the counseling centers to register for classes that are treated unfairly because they're black or judged right. because they're brown. So right. I think this is a it's a very timely documentary. You did an outstanding job and I really commend you for just getting it done. One final question for you. And then sure. I'm going to let you have final remarks. What made you decide to pull the trigger on this? What made you decide <laughs> to go for it? Well, I'm a researcher, I'm a writer, um, and a lot of times, most of the times with academic articles, you're, you're preaching to the choir, right? So if mm-hmm. I'm writing about race in higher education, the only other people that are writing about it are people in academia that want to cite my article and write some more about race in higher education. Right. And um, for me, I'm a big believer in making your knowledge accessible um, to the public, you know, outside of the academic sphere. And 
so a lot of people that study race in higher education, they'll see this documentary and they'll say, well, you know, there's not necessarily anything new here. But what I'm trying to do is tell an old story a new way so that we can get people who are not experts in race, so we can get uh, white faculty members and white administrators to see um, that there are issues here that need to be addressed and that can be addressed. So that's the way I, that's why I decided to package um, this particular story in this particular way. I think it will be accessible. Um, I think that it will inspire people to, to change certain things within their campus culture. Um, well, at least that's what I'm hoping. Any final thoughts? Uh, no, I would like your listeners to know that the website is remixingcolorblind.com, and we'll be posting um, as we get them the screenings and where, where the documentary will be screened going forward, you know, post our Thursday premiere. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy um, that I could put this product out there. I'm really, I really am fascinated and just I'm really honored to have been able to have you as a guest today. Thank you so much. Where can we find you? Are you on Twitter, Instagram? Where can we find you? Yes. Um, my website is SheenaCHoward.com. My Twitter is Dr. Sheena Howard. Um, I'm, I'm active on Twitter. Um, and again, uh, the documentary website is remixingcolorblind.com. And I'm also on Facebook. You can find me at Dr. Sheena C. Howard. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank Dr. Sheena Howard for coming on to the Black Girl Nerds podcast to discuss remixing colorblind racism on campus. Thanks so much. This is Karan for Black Girl Nerds. Go to blackgirlnerds.com forward slash t-shirts. Purchase any one of our logos, as well as professional designs by artists such as characters as Princess Tiana, Storm, Wonder Woman, Funky Medusa, and so much more. You can also purchase our logos and our avatars that you see on our website. Go to blackgirlnerds.com forward slash t-shirts. T-shirts come in all sizes. We also have various designs available in prints that you can purchase as wall art and posters. And you can also purchase them as cases for your iPhone. So go to blackgirlnerds.com forward slash t-shirts and show your support for BGN. Joy T is a marketer and writer who is excited to join Black Girl Nerds as one of our interviewers. And you can find her managing Blavity Foodies Instagram and Blavity Life's Twitter. Joy is also the founder of youngcorporateandblack.com a blog for writers to share their tales of being one of the few in a primarily white workspace. Dina Tate is the president and founder of Global Girls Squad, LLC, a publishing and technology company. Her first book, which combines her love of travel and Japanese animation, is titled Lizzie and Mackenzie's Fabulous Adventures, which she will be launching in June of this year. The book is centered around the travels of Lizzie and Mackenzie, where they learn about each other's cultures while appreciating being different. Unfortunately, they will need to stop the same glam goddess who wants to make all the little girls of the world look the same. Dina has over 15 years in global digital marketing arena, which includes positions held at MasterCard, New York Life, and Essence. Dina is also an adjunct instructor at the NY School of Professional Studies. Dina wants to point out that she recently reached out to an angel investor, telling him about her campaign. And this is what he told her. If your crowdfunding fails, that is more likely a reflection of the consumer demand for your product. To her, now she knows that there is a demand. Crowdfunding is a hit or a miss, but it'd be great to prove them wrong. Okay, so we are here 
with uh, Dina Tate. And Dina has an Indiegogo out right now for a new book called Lizzie and Mackenzie's Fabulous Adventures. So Dina, thank you for taking the time out to talk to me. I'm excited. It's my first interview, so. <laughs> excited too, so thank you. No, no problem. So tell me about Lizzie McKenzie, why they need to have a fabulous adventure, and kind of where the idea to have this book and put it on Indiegogo started. So it's just a sort of several layers to Lizzie and McKenzie. Lizzie and McKenzie's actually myself and my mother. So Lizzie is my mother and McKenzie is myself. So Every year, my mother and I travel to a different part of the different part of the world, matter of fact, and I end up being the travel guide. And I notice every time I travel to a different part of the world, my mother, I never see a lot of us. And I notice from doing all the navigation and seeing all the different parts of the world that it just hit me. I need to create something that'll teach everybody a part of the world. And every time when I come back home and I would tell people about where I've been, I would see people's faces light up and how they would enjoy about the places that I've been. So when I would tell them I've been to Madrid and saw a bullfight or been to Lisbon and saw this or saw Athens, I would notice their faces and how they would love that experience that I had with my mother. And I didn't think people would be attached to a trip with me and my mother, but I also had great experiences as a young girl with my friends. So I thought that maybe if I created something with myself, with my mother as us, as young girls, I think that would be really cool. And I always loved reading as a young girl. I loved Little House on the Prairie. I loved reading Judy Bloom books. I loved all these books growing up as a young girl up to Harry Potter. And so I wanted to combine something like that and make something really cool for young girls today. So I wanted to combine the travel, my love of books, and combine that together. And that's how Lizzie and Mackenzie was simply born. And also with that twist of my love of Japanese animation, my love of comics, and bring that all together in one cool synergistic book. So one of the things I noticed on your Indiegogo is your use of the hashtag a thousand black girl books, um, as well as black girl magic. I don't know if people are familiar with a thousand black girl books, but it's a young girl. She's in sixth grade. She's in New Jersey. And by her quote, she was tired of reading about white boys and their dogs. Um, so she decided to do a fundraiser to get more books that are centered around black girls. So from your perspective, why do you think that there is a need to have more books focused on black girls and black women? When I was doing my research, when obtaining money to get funding for my book, that's the first thing that jumped out was that there is a huge lack of books for black girls. Like for instance, the last major publication for chapter books was a few years ago and the last major book is out of print. And it's funny that some of these agents, some of these publications, they're afraid to create books for us, where some agencies say, well, we're afraid that we're not the right agent for you, or we need to find the right publisher. It's like they just have this fear of how to market books for us. And it's so crazy that we love to read, we love magic, we're like Caucasian girls of other girls of color, but it's just interesting how they just think that we're not readers when we're avid readers. And then it's also these studies where that we want stuff that to identify with. So with the thousand black girls, it resonates so much and there's so much data out there that we need stuff that we want to identify with. And why there's so many problems in school with our self-image and our identity that we need it. And it's funny that she came out with it, Black Girl Magic, 
And it's funny how people think that this is just something in the air. But no, there's data that's out there that proves it, that it's important. And it's so sad that these publishers and these agents just think it's a fluke. But it's, it's actually there and it's really important. So that's when she has that out there. And I made the point of putting it in my Indiegogo campaign, not to just to take advantage of it, but to say that it's really important and it's really prevalent. And it does mean a lot to me as someone who used to be and still is an avid reader of books. Right. So you mentioned earlier when you're talking about Lizzie and McKenzie that traveling, especially black girl traveling, is something that you didn't necessarily see in the books that you were researching. You mentioned Lisbon, you mentioned Madrid, you mentioned Athens that you've been to. I've actually, I went to Madrid and Lisbon last year. So, and I had a, I had a great time. I'm going to, I'm going overseas next month as well. What is the greatest place that you've been to in terms of travel wise and why? Oh, wow. Um, I would have to say it was Lisbon because I almost wanted to live there and Brussels. Because with Brussels, they it seems like they don't try so hard, and they're so cool. Where it's in the border between where you could, with Brussels, you can go to Paris, you can go to Berlin, you can go to another part of Germany, and they're just really cool and laid back, and they're really friendly, and they welcome you with open arms, and they really help you embrace the culture, embrace the language, and I like how they just. They're not really trying too hard. I know I keep repeating that, but I really like things like that where people always feeling like they have to keep their chest up, always feeling like they're trying to prove something. Where in Brussels, they really don't try to do that, especially with Lisbon as well, where some country, countries won't try to help you. Where Lisbon, sometimes I was looking at a map and, and the guy walked up to me, he's like, where are you trying to find? What are you trying to find? I was like, oh, I'm trying to find this. And they'll help you. Where some countries, they, they really won't do that. Sometimes they'll stare at you hard, stare at you. The hours on end, and and that can be difficult. And sometimes the running joke, when people will stare at myself and my mother, I'll say, "Oh, I'm Beyonce and she's Oprah. Please, no autographs." <laughs> and so I start to make it a running joke because sometimes it does get tough where they just keep staring at you, and you have to sort of kind of get used to sort of those things when you do travel. It, it gets to be tough when it's you and them, and they just stare at you constantly. So, so sort of things you got to get used to. When you're traveling overseas. I'm actually going to Brussels next month. So when you oh, said that, I was like. <laughs> you'll, you'll love it. It rains a lot, but but you'll love it. You'll, you'll love it. Yeah. And we're going in like late March. So I'm, I'm imagining the rain is going to be ridiculous because we're going to Amsterdam. We're going to London. We're going to Brussels. And last year I did Madrid. I did Lisbon and I did Paris. So I'm super excited about that. And it's funny, people have mixed feelings about Paris, and I've had a great experience with Paris, where people were coming up to me asking me for directions, and I don't speak a lick of French, but I think it's how you carry yourself. And it makes me feel good that I'm hearing more African-Americans travel more, but I think we need to do more of that. And people just need to understand, it's not that expensive, you just need to know how to budget it properly, because what my the trick with me and my mother did and that's what I, one thing I would love to do with Lizzie and Kenzie is that we do it budget low key for the first couple of days. And then the last day we'll do it extravagant. So that's how we, how we manage our trip. We'll, we'll see the most important spots and I'll make sure I learn the city, learn the culture. We travel by train and I make sure she enjoys the whole trip. We travel by subway and we see everything that we need to see. And we'll do one or two tours, and that's pretty much it. We we do it like the locals. 
we don't act pretentious, we don't act, we don't act out. And so people, when we're out there, people respect us and treat us nicely. And I think that's one thing takeaway that I like to give to other people. Don't act out and they'll respect you. So <laughs> for you, do you have any like websites or any cheat codes that you kind of use as a resource to get your low fares? I know I have my own personal websites that I use to keep a track on on flights and how cheap they are. Is there any personal ones that you like that you want to share? I actually don't. What I do is I do everything. I'm a big, this is where I get really geeky. I do it nine months in advance. And then I break down with TripAdvisor. I do my top 20 hotels. And then I break it down by the top 10. And then I cross-reference with Expedia. And then I end up picking like the boutique hotels. And then I look for the little things of what people say. And then I just really pick it apart. So like with Lisbon, I like that the hotel was a couple of blocks away from the train station. So I try to pick a hotel that's near a train station because that's how I do my navigation. So I pick points of interest that's near a train station because I don't, I, I'm the tour guide. And so that's how I base how Lizzie McKenzie works. So with my book series with Madrid, I point out certain travel spots based on how we traveled. So the book is semi-autographical because of the places where we've been, because I know it like the back of my hand, because that's where I took my mother. So that that's what makes I feel like the book so cool that I can remember all the spots that we've been to. So it always trails back. But that I don't have no special things. I used everything through TripAdvisor, but I just, as a geek, I just drill down and drill down and drill down and do a lot of boutique hotels. Okay, so I'm going to give you one last question. You mentioned more than once that you're a geek. Obviously, this is Black Girl Nerds, so... <laughs> Talk to me about what you're reading. You mentioned that you like uh, Japanese anime. I was actually a Japanese minor in college, so Japanese anime is near and dear to my heart. Um, you also mentioned you're a comic book fan, so talk to me about what you're reading, what you're watching. So I used to watch, and I still am a fan of, Sailor Moon. I actually collect Sailor Moon cells, so I have over 30 Sailor Moon Japanese animation cells. I still collect those. I have over 20 Fushigi Yuiji animation cells. I have 10 of Cardcaptor Sakura cells. I loved Escaflone. I loved Cardcaptor Sakura. I watched, which one I still watch? I watched Peach Girl. So I watch a lot of old school stuff. And I'm still, I watch Sailor Moon Crystal now. And every now and then I watch some of the new stuff. Like I like Canary X. Mm -hmm. And so, when, and I'm a fan of, DC Comics. So I still watch, I still like Wonder Woman. I love the Superman Wonder Woman series, which is really interesting now. I still like Justice League. Um, I like Storm from Marvel. So that's pretty much where I'm at right now. So I dip in, in and out. I try to read what's going on. I like Arrow. I like Flash. I like Gotham. I used to like Sleepy Hollow. I don't like what they did the last season. I liked the first two, but it's just some. I had some issues with it, and I actually had a back and forth with Black Girls Nurse about it. I was gonna say because Jamie loves herself since Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> yes, I, I had a back and forth about it because I think the writers sort of fell off with it, and and it, and it sort of they did it a disservice with they did a disservice with that series. I think it could have had some legs to it. And it's really sad that that series has sort of died down a bit. It, it really, it could have done really well. 
Okay, well, I respect that. I'm actually a Marvel girl myself. I grew up on Marvel. My dad was really big on Marvel. I figured to mention him because it's his birthday today. I was just thinking about him. So yeah, he a uh, big Marvel fan. The Marvel TV series. I, I really haven't gotten into Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but I enjoy Agent Carter so much. It's such a good show. Such a, such a good show. And um, in terms of anime, I was just talking to a friend about this. Did you, did you ever see a Yu Hakusho? No, I haven't. Oh, my God. So it used to be on Toonami back in the early 2000s, I think. Amazing, amazing, amazing television series. Probably one of the, to me, one of the most complex but really impactful kind of storylines that I really saw on, like, anime, in television, and an English dub. Like, it was really, really good. So if you ever have an interest in, in getting some new ones, do that. Also, if you're watching Sailor Moon Crystal, because I think, isn't that on Hulu? Yes. Okay, so I don't know if they still have it up, but they used to have a, a anime series, Fruits Basket, which is based off of an actual anime book, and it was, I loved Fruits Basket, so I'd add that to your list, too. I have such a cue on a role that is, is unbelievable. It's it's so bloated. Yeah, that's what happens when you get when you get around other like black girl nerds. Like you'll have a, such a list of things. It's just like I've never heard of that. I need to add that to the list. So I always have to be like, you guys don't tell me anything. I I have so many things on my in my queue. To your point, that I just I won't be able to get through all of it anytime soon. Yeah, and that's what I'm doing. So, but I like what DC's doing with. The Wonder Woman, Superman, how now they're actually dating and having a romance. So that's been really interesting how they've developed that. So we'll see what happens with that. But I hope that people will end up supporting me in my Indiegogo campaign with Lizzie McKenzie because I think that's hugely important to get uh, more girls to have books that they can identify with back to the original subject because I think that's important so i really wanted to tap into my love of books my love of animation and bring that to print and hopefully the book will be a seven book series where they'll be traveling to the different parts of the the continent and i hope to be able to teach people about traveling the world and and hopefully people will love it just like i do it was a labor of love and i'm, I'm so proud of it and hopefully people will support it well, Dina, where can we find you? Um, make sure to give us all your information on your Indiegogo campaign, on social media. Where can we find you? So you can find me on Twitter, Dina C. Tate. That's my Twitter handle. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find my Indiegogo page. And just look up Lizzie and McKenzie. I'm building the Lizzie and McKenzie page right now. And we can also take pre-orders on that Indiegogo campaign because that's still running until mid-March. And I'll probably even extend it once the campaign ends. So hopefully people will still check it out. Yep. So thank you, Nina. And just for a reminder for you guys, make sure to check out Lizzie and McKenzie's Fabulous Avengers on uh, Dina's Indiegogo page. And just a nice little note for each book purchase, you also donate to firstbook.org, correct? Yes. So what the wonderful thing about First Book is they donate to underprivileged schools. So I really wanted to align myself with an organization like that. For every purchase, two fifty goes to them. So that's really important. So that you'll feel like you're helping me and you're helping them at the same time. So you get to give back. You get to have a great book about Black girl greatness and Black girl magic. Yes, all the fabulousness and you're helping them at the same time. So it, it's, it's love all around. So you, you can't go wrong. You honestly can't. Well, thank you so much, Dina. This is Joy signing off. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. 
Thank you. Games and cartoons, some milk in my cereal. I'll be home soon to chill with my video. Games and cartoons, some milk in my cereal. I'll be home soon to chill with my video. Games. I wish I could live in my video games. I would never come back. It's where my heroes and my villains is at. Nowadays I gotta spend my boring day at the job computing. Then I spend a 40-minute drive commuting. My mainframe drains, so I need to get rebooted. Then I must refrain from calling the stupid. I'm a yell, real monsters. Cause I can tell that I be dealing with imposters. They wanna boast about coasting like the job is motorboats. Nope, I know they hate it, even though they always say they don't. I leave all the politicking and the gossip at the office. When I get to my spot, it's all about my starship. We finna blast off in my apartment. Star Fox never dies until we starving. And if you want that sweet, that nasty, don't ask me. Take another the bus and deep in the backseat. I'm busy driving fast like a New York City taxi. I'm on my final lap and everybody trying to pass me. Games and cartoons, some milk in my cereal. I'll be home soon to chill with my video. Games and cartoons, some milk in my cereal. I'll be home soon to chill with my video. Games. I wish I could live in my video. Games. I would never come back. It's where my heroes and my villains is at. Yeah, okay. They was doing hair, buying makeup in the bra. While same as catching airplane, lots of Tony Got my family calm, beat the game with Donatella Now Versace, every day I use the boat and toss it I like Hibachi I'm a winner from Konami to the Tamagotchi I'm breaking records, you should probably call me Kobayashi If it's CGI, animated, pixelated Got it on my resume, yeah, that's the way I get acquainted Bomber man, I promise I'll be detonating Number munches, I participate in estimating Got it underrated, always stay decapitating Call the plumbers, they anticipate some princess saving Got to GameStop, I had an ex-mom I want a game that's off a square, soft a Capcom Or maybe EA Sports, it's in the game Playing games, not a choice, it's in my name Games and cartoons, some milk in my cereal I'll be home soon to chill with my video Games and cartoons, some milk in my cereal I'll be home soon to chill with my video